This week on The Elucidators, we're recording on Tuesday, June 16th, about three weeks after George Floyd's murder sparked a wave of international outrage and protest against police brutality and racism. Thousands of peaceful protesters of every race and ethnicity have gathered in the world's great cities from London to Seoul and everywhere in between, not only to stand in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States, but also to decry discrimination, racism, and historical injustices against minority groups in their own countries. Could this mark the birth of a new international norm of anti-racism? Stick with us, and we'll get into it. Welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. As always, I'm your host, Steve Pally. With me, as always, is my co-host, Sumi Chatterjee. What's going on, man? What's the latest? Uh, things are going all right. The academic year at my university is wrapping up. Mm. The city appears to be returning to normal, mm-hmm. which means the streets are loud. So I am back in the closet, guys. <laughs> back in the closet. Back from whence you came. As yeah, once the traffic uh, in the park across the street picks up, I I retreat to a, uh, a 1920s walk-in closet with Got no it. ventilation. And that is why they invented Zoom backgrounds, isn't it? Sure enough. Sure enough. Yeah, so um, my son had his tonsils out uh, last week, so I've been dealing with the aftermath of that. Apparently, when you have this done at three years old, it's the best possible time to do it, and it's still horrible. As an adult... You're going to be on morphine for weeks, is my understanding. But this is this is bad enough at age three. But um, yeah, I don't I don't recommend being doing it or being associated with it in any way, unless you have to be. So your your son is not necessarily the picture of uh, grace and restraint in these moments. <laughs> yeah, our hope is that it, this this procedure will restore him to his formerly pristine state. Um, oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow. We will see. Yeah, no, it, 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 in, in all seriousness, uh, it's, it's gone pretty well, but uh, I'm a bit low on sleep, but them's the breaks. Uh, we have a show to do. Quick note, though, actually, um, we're going to take a break next week. Uh, so we're going to do this week's show. We're going to skip next week, and then we'll be back the week following with more Elucidators goodness. Yeah, and there are so many crazy things going on. The uh, India-China story that we talked about two weeks ago. Yeah, man. That appears to be going, uh, escalating into real violence, multiple deaths. And yet still hand-to-hand combat. (laughs) Weirdly. Uh, Yeah. I mean, for all the fear of, like, nuclear wars, (laughs) soldiers can still beat each other to death with clubs. It sticks and stones will, in fact, break your bones in the Himalayas. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, we'll be, we'll be back in two weeks. Uh, no show next week. Um, with that bit of housekeeping out of the way, why don't we go to a listener question? And the question is as follows. We got this on Twitter. Uh, you can tweet us at the underscore elucidators. Uh, and this is from Amanda in Los Angeles, our hometown. Okay, my question for the elucidators what country is everyone sleeping on? What country are we not talking about that's low-key crushing it economically, socially, politically? And should we all move there? Thanks, guys. Big fan. 
Mm, thanks, Amanda. Sooms, uh, what's your opinion on this? I love a local listener. That's yeah. my opinion. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> no, uh, so it's it's a good question. And, it is a good uh, question. And Amanda in Los Angeles is about to find out how uh, painfully unhelpful the academic training can be in actually answering questions. Um, well, because it's a good question. So she says, what country are we not talking about that's low-key crushing it economically, socially, and politically? Well, in this moment, it's tough to find anyone, any one country that's crushing it uh, across all those measures on account yeah. of the, the global recession, perhaps depression, the, at the very least a downturn, the ongoing uh, pandemic. The usual, uh, the usual suspects in this question, when you look across like the, the magazines and NGOs, the non-governmental organizations that take on these questions like world's happiest country, safest country, most secure, all those things, yeah. you tend to get the usual suspects. So you get your Canada's, your, your Nordic, your Scandinavian countries, you get the Netherlands, Sweden, Sweden, Finland, Norway, Iceland, you get Australia, you get New Zealand. Oftentimes you'll get a Japan in the mix. Sure, um, sure, sure. Yeah, so you, usual suspects. Yeah, you get those ones. They're committed to to good public health. They tend to be uh, pretty open politically, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I can't look. At one point during the Truman administration, uh, President Truman said, "My kingdom," something to the effect of, "My kingdom for." A, a one-handed economist because he was tired of an of economist telling him. Well, on the other hand, right, and that that's kind of the that's kind of the deal here with this. Like, it depends how you want to look at it uh, to for low-key crushing it. So that is uh, that is a good answer and an accurate answer and also a fundamentally unsatisfying answer. I'm going to do things a little bit different here, Amanda, and uh, I'm going to treat this like I would treat, let's say, the NBA draft, and. We all know that like the top 10 players in the draft, you know, you're going to get some solid players. You're going to get some NBA players, you know, uh, their upside is not necessarily realized, but it like everybody is well aware of it. Um, I'm going to go hunting for a draft gem in the second round. Uh, and I'm going to give you, I guess, a uh, value for draft pick. So this, this is a, this is kind of an overlooked uh, country that people really aren't talking about and, and may not be be thinking of when they think of uh, countries with uh, upside, South Africa. That's right, South Africa. Land of, uh, I mean, extreme racial injustice, which we'll be talking about a little bit later uh, until pretty recently and, and continuing uh, through recent, recent years, um, obviously apartheid and so on. Uh, still a developing country, but... Also, the largest and most technologically advanced economy in Africa, a functioning democracy that is recovering from a period of extreme corruption under Jacob Zuma, who is the last president. Uh, The new guy, Cyril Ramaphosa, is by all accounts a good president and dedicated to rooting out corruption in society. Uh, Zuma was indicted on, I believe, 700 counts of fraud and money laundering. It's some very large number. Uh, Ramaphosa, even though they're in the same political party, is is actually, you know, his government is prosecuting him. So that's impressive in and of itself. You know, still lots of problems with inequality and and frankly racism. But we've had a number of peaceful transitions in power. Or you know, uh, since uh, Nelson Mandela, through 
Thabo Mbeki, Zuma, and now Ramaphosa. Um, so I think the prospects for South Africa are good, particularly because the 21st century, by the end of the 21st century, something like one in three or one in four human beings on earth are going to be located in Africa. Africa is going to be the demographic driver of growth on planet earth uh, by the end of the century. So it's going to have to grow and it's going to have to uh, grow fast. And I think we're going to see that out of that continent and potentially South Africa. So that is my answer. Thanks for the awesome question. Amanda in Los Angeles. Uh, remember, if you have listener questions, you can hit us up on Twitter. You can email us directly at the at gmail.com. Uh, you can comment at us on YouTube. Uh, just search for us, the elucidators, and you will find. Um, Sumi, with that out of the way, where are we this week? Well, the uh, the South Africa example is a it's a good lead in to where we are this week. This week we are all over the world and we are also in the world of ideas, which is to say we're, we're talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, not from the perspective of Americans who are in this moment, uh, even though we have talked about it in previous shows, we're talking about Black Lives Matter in the context of international politics. Because hmm. in the last few weeks, Black Lives Matter movement, BLM, has taken off globally. What, you know, three weeks ago, three weeks and a day ago, uh, George Floyd was killed under the knee of a Minneapolis police officer. Improbably named Derek Chauvin, which I still yeah. can't get over. That's just so crazy and literary, yeah. right? Yeah, the, sh- the, sh- the chauvinism, the chauvinist. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this is when we look at it and we say, okay, here is a guy who was, as Al Sharpton said at his eulogy, he wasn't a famous guy. He wasn't a celebrity. He wasn't, he wasn't particularly extraordinary in any way. And yet this, th- this movement has taken off under his name. And we say, yeah. well, what, ha- what happened? And why is this? Ha- and what has happened? So what's happened is there are protests in Black Lives Matter, protests in Ireland, in England, in France, throughout Western Europe, in Scandinavia, parts of East Africa, parts of West Africa, in Latin America, Brazil, Seoul, in South Korea, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, parts of the Middle East, uh, parts of Eastern Europe. This has become a global moment where the world is looking looking at this video, and there are tens and tens of thousands of people. I mean, Berlin, for, for example, Berlin doesn't have a large... Uh, population of folks that are of sub-Saharan African extraction. Uh, Same goes with Seoul and Tokyo. <laughs> right, exactly. These places that don't have big black populations, their their citizens are taking to the streets. And you have to say, well, what what is what has happened? You know, for anyone that's been following American news for the last ever forever, there has been there have been issues of racial inequality, injustice of police brutality against minorities, particularly those of of African extraction. What is it about this moment? And what does it mean in terms of how uh, the people, I mean that in the broadest possible consensus, how the publics, how people within various countries are connected, how do they react to events? You know, we talk a lot about the drivers of international politics. And traditionally, you know, folks like me and Steve, when we think about international politics and its drivers, we think about guns and bombs. Bombs, 
factories, GNP, all this yeah, stuff. We th- yeah, we think about money. We think about guns and money. We think about the ability to coerce. And we're seeing this moment where the political attention of big parts of the world are focused on this question of injustice, particularly injustice towards minorities. And so the question we're taking on is, what does this mean from an international relations perspective, from an international politics perspective? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think it raises pretty interesting theoretical questions that we can get into a little bit later in the show. Um, But yeah, just running through some of these examples are, it's kind of crazy, right? It seems like this has ignited just a chain reaction of um, people who feel similarly uh, across the world because every single country on earth basically has problems with racism. Um, Even in Africa, where everybody is of African extraction, practically, uh, you have ethnic groups that discriminate and even commit genocide against one another, right? This is a very human behavior, unfortunately, and it's been a very common behavior for a very long time, um, perpetrated mostly by European populations upon non-European populations in the form of slavery and colonialism. Um, And those legacies persist um, across many, many wealthy countries. Um, So in the UK, uh, you have the Black Lives Matter, or the BLM protesters um, focusing on uh, the UK's legacy as a slave trading state and as a colonial state. Um, So you've had uh, statues of prominent slave traders uh, end up at the bottoms of rivers. Um, You've had statues of national heroes like Winston Churchill um, basically been boarded up because uh, they felt that the statue was going to get defaced by protesters uh, who did not appreciate his uh, less than stellar record in colonial matters, particularly in India. Uh, in Paris, you have 20,000 people marching in Paris, uh, you know, in solidarity with the protesters in America, but they have their own incidents of police brutality uh, against non white populations. Uh, the uh, the the guy who was killed by cops uh, and, and that people are protesting right now is named Adama Traore, um, who I think is of North African extraction and was suffocated to death by police in 2016 in a manner very similar uh, to George Floyd or Eric Garner. Um, Belgian protesters lit a statue of King Leopold II on fire. This is the guy, Leopold II, who killed up to 10 million Congolese over a century ago uh, by running uh, that gigantic Central African country as his personal fiefdom and working the population to death on his rubber plantations, right? They lit a a statue on fire. They would have destroyed it if they could have. Um, As we've said, protests in Seoul and Tokyo, uh, which are pretty ethnically homogenous without a lot of people of African extraction, um, nevertheless, they're protesting, you know, and you look at this and you're just like, man, are, we're living through history. This is it. This is happening. Right. And speaking of history, assumes this is not the first time that racial issues in the United States have kicked off sort of a global firestorm. Right. No, look, the the civil rights uh, and it should be noted, although it's not as as frequently discussed, uh, the Black Power movement as mm-hmm. well within this country 
uh, were not their their impact was not confined to the laws and norms within this country. Uh, they the civil rights songs like "We Shall Overcome," just to use a, a, a kind of accessible example that by no means encapsulates the the entirety of what I'm trying to say here, is that these kinds of things like songs like "We Shall Overcome" are global songs, right? That yeah. the that the struggle for for equality for uh, reparations, not in the policy sense, but in the sense of repairing past sins, historical legacies, addressing the the evils of the past uh, in this country, have been uh, an important part of uh, the American attraction, the soft power of the U.S. Right. So much of what happened in 2008 and 2012, the election re-election of Barack Obama, uh, while you know he was met with fierce political opposition and plenty of uh, racial, racist, and racially charged uh, opposition from folks that didn't like him, uh, in, including the current president. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> So much of what that meant outside of this country, I mean, it means the same thing here, was that this country was reckoning and was moving beyond some of its darkest uh, darkest histories. That this country, a majority of this country that voted, and by an overwhelming majority the second time, would vote for a guy with a funny African name and the middle name of Hussein. Uh, you know, it's it's part of the power of of the American attraction that we can take these things on. But in this moment of George Floyd and Philando Castile, and I can't even begin to go through all the names that, because tragically there are so many. There are too many. What, yeah. what, uh, what the world is also seeing, there's a, a line that a student of mine said in, uh, in a class a while ago that she learned in another class, which was, uh, America is in many ways uh, everybody's second culture. And in this age uh, where we went from mass media to constant media uh, engagement through phones, through screens all around us, uh, you know, the, the wiring on that stuff still has a big component of the wiring of that stuff is American culture. And so there's this question of, well, you know, these stories, you know, the video of George Floyd, it's a global video. It's not a Minnesota video. It's not a Minneapolis video. It's not a Great Lakes video. It's not a national video. It's an international video, and it serves as the spark to address injustice, particularly racial injustice, in countries where there is, as Steve talked about, a a long and dark history of uh, of slavery or colonialism, colonial oppression, to countries that where there is no big link, and this is just a moment to say this stuff has to stop. It has to stop. That's right. And it's interesting that you should talk about screens because um, we have seen this before uh, on screens um, during the civil rights movement in the United States, uh, uh, whereby we had images broadcast um, from uh, the marches in the South, the Freedom Riders, um, the, the marchers uh, with, with Dr. King uh, from uh, Montgomery to Selma, for instance, or was it Selma de Montgomery? I forget which. Um, but uh, basically all these images beamed for the first time via television across the world of basically nonviolent protesters being firehosed and attacked with dogs and things like this, right? And it, it led to a very powerful reaction. And this was in the 60s during the height of the Cold War against the USSR. And it really undermined 
the United States, I guess, ethical and moral case to being having a superior system to the Soviet Union <laughs> or, or the communist Chinese because uh, these images were everywhere and the Soviets and the Chinese could, could point to them and say, hey, like you criticize us for putting people in gulags. Look, look at what you're doing. Um, to your your ethnic minority citizens. I mean, notwithstanding the fact that both countries mercilessly oppress their own ethnic minorities, it still looked really bad because we made a claim to being better than them qualitatively. When in fact, yes, we were in some ways, but we had our own skeletons in the closet and, you know, uh, people were suffering. (laughs) Every single day, people were dying uh, due to white supremacy. Um, so, you know, during the Kennedy administration, uh, Dean Rusk, uh, you know, who was high up in the Kennedy administration, actually argued that Jim Crow in the U.S. undermined the United States' ability to win the Cold War. He said that this had a profound effect on our foreign policy and our ability to gather allies, particularly in the developing world. Um, the precursor to the African Union, um, all of the countries in Africa were new at that point. They had been decolonized from the European powers almost cut off relations with the United States over racial animus and racial violence in the U.S. during the 60s. Instead, they settled on what amounts to a stiffly worded letter, um, and we maintained maintain those relationships and those alliances. But like, it was kind of a close thing because they saw what was happening and they said, you guys are white supremacists. Like, why should we deal with you? You know, The Soviets are a better choice for us, um, some of them. Um, eventually the topic changed as the Vietnam War kind of ground on and became more intractable and people got distracted uh, away from civil rights to a certain extent. Um, But we've seen this once before, right? And it overlaps with international relations because we're now in this moment where the United States looks confused, divided, and weak. We've had a bad policy response to COVID. Uh, We've had a bad, well, a suboptimal, I would argue, presidency <laughs> for the last three and a half years, uh, confused policies, uh, letting down allies, which we've talked about at length, including last well, week's episode. Hold right? on. The, to, well, well, here's the thing. Like, it doesn't have to be about what you argue about Trump because it's a bad, in a poll that came out this week, 54% of Americans in this poll said that they believe the president is racist. Yeah, that's a majority, yeah. Like, we can't, like, you can talk about this in, in different ways, but if we're going to have the conversation of, you know, America as as an attractor of other countries in the scheme of international relations, in order to be great, you have to be good. And the majority of Americans do not think the president is good on race. Yeah. And... um I'm not sure how long we've been asking that question. Um, I don't think we would have asked it in, of the last administration. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty clear what's going on here. And it undermines our ability to hold countries like Russia and China to account, right? Uh, we've been trying to criticize the Chinese on their horrible human rights record uh, in places like Xinjiang, where they have one million Muslim Uyghurs in camps, you know, concentration camps, basically. In Hong Kong, which are in the process of grinding into the dust, um, you know, they're going to take over and basically institute a police state there. Um, maybe not all at once, but over time. And, uh, of course, uh, the, the Putin regime in Russia has suppressed democratic, um, tendencies for decades now. 
um, and and has only tightened its grip over time. He is on the verge of becoming effectively president for life uh, in a what is now a July 1st referendum. And when guys like Mike Pompeo, the secretary of state, try to hold these countries to account and say, hey, you know, you're violating human rights. Um, it's very easy for China's army of propagandists to turn around and say, your cities are on fire. Like, your cops are killing your own civilians. Um, this administration has been particularly bad on the soft power stuff. So I've said soft power, I'll define it again. Soft power is broadly conceived. It's the ability to influence, persuade, and attract. And it's mostly the attraction stuff that's a problem for the United States right now. Yeah. The To your point... The incident in Lafayette Square with the clearing of peaceful protesters, including the the beating of foreign press from Australia, from Germany, countries that are our allies. Australia is a longstanding American ally and a very important military ally. Hitting an Australian uh, an Australian journalist with a shield so that the president could have a photo op in front of a church. This is the kind of propaganda gold that our adversaries wouldn't like they couldn't have dreamed this up mike pompeo the state department having a black lives matter flag taken down off of the state department building in seoul that's right is is another problem like this kind the country just as like an international relations like a state department and a diplomatic level is like well you're either going to lean in on the attractive part of America as this place that can actually openly, even if it's ugly and messy and indelicate in all the possible ways you can imagine, but it has the capacity to openly reckon with its demons. You either embrace that or you don't. And we're not, we're plainly not doing that right now. So from an IR perspective, it's not going well. It's not going well, but I think you put you hit the nail on the head. It's right in that in a lot of systems, it is not possible to basically air one's dirty laundry in the way that we're doing continuously and peacefully um, with the demonstrations and protesters in the streets. Um, my understanding is that Black Lives Matter currently as a movement enjoys more popularity than either Donald Trump or Joe Biden. And the margins are actually not close. It's like 20 or 30 points ahead of both of them in terms of favorability rating, um, which I think is really interesting and indicative of where people's sympathies lie. And I think it also sort of draws attention to the fact that this administration isn't just anti-democratic in its tendencies towards authoritarianism. It's anti-democratic in its failure to represent American public opinion within the country and also abroad, you know? It's like it's out of step with what people actually want in this country. It's serving its constituency, uh, which is increasingly narrow um, and, you know, may or may not be sufficient to win a majority in the Electoral College. We'll see soon enough. Um, but it's it's the first administration in a long time that has made no pretense, not even a pretense, of saying – we represent the entirety of America, you know? I am the president of all the American people. Trump Trump says that occasionally. Often he doesn't, really. Um, but he doesn't mean it, you know? But the, it's not just you saying that. It's his former Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, who said almost exactly that. Yes. <laughs> right. and, and there are plenty of more uh, voices emerging from the woodwork uh, to say similar things. Um, so as far as 
discussion of this phenomena goes, I, I, I think what everybody wants to know is why is it happening now? Why now? Um, because we've had, unfortunately, um, in the recent past, uh, police killings of black people caught on video, right? We had Eric Garner, which was pretty similar in 2014. That was during the Obama administration. Um, we had, I think, uh, Zimmerman before that, um, Trayvon Martin, uh, that killing that was not caught on camera. Um, but that incited major national controversy, I think also during the Obama administration, right? It was, there was a very, um, to give you a sense of, uh, the space between the previous administration and, uh, the current one, uh, Barack Obama gave a very, uh, I mean, it was a tough press conference in which he talked about Trayvon. Yeah. And he said, while wiping away a tear, if I had a son, he would look like Trayvon. Right. And to to the point of what a, a great, a wonderful person George Zimmerman is, you know, Trayvon was famously coming back from the corner store with a bag of Skittles. George Zimmerman has signed bags of Skittles for people, just to let you know. Stupendous, just to all around great yeah. human being. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but like the question remains: Why are we seeing this like tremendous global response uh, when these other sort of um, you know equally reprehensible police killings or, or vigilante killings in the case of Zimmerman um, didn't really touch off the same sort of firestorm? So this is like this is a, a terrific like to to take some of the emotion out of it for a moment is to say this is like this is the kinds of questions that social scientists dig into. I know. <laughs> it's a leading question. <laughs> yeah. So you say like, okay, here's this outcome, here's here's this thing that's happened. What has caused it? So we've talked about a lot of them and let's quickly list them. One is the proliferation of video, right? It is yeah. that is that things get as Will Smith. I know this has uh, made its rounds in the op-ed of, of the last few weeks. Will Smith said in an interview with Stephen Colbert in 2016, "Racism hasn't changed; it's just being filmed." Right. So, which is an, a nice encapsulation of saying, "Well, everybody's got a phone. Everybody's got a recording device for injustice." That's one issue. Another issue is the ongoing uh, pandemic for us in the United States, Ugh. as well as as well as those in the uh, in in Western Europe. You know, we're just starting to come out of the first, and it's probably just going to be the first of these of these quarantine lockdowns. And during this time, screen time for everyone that had a screen and regular internet access went way up, right? Way up, yeah. So, so news consumption went way up. It's not. I don't think you know to to muddle. God. Any any uh, research methods professor would hate what I'm about to do. I mean, I think it's no surprise that the president tried to take advantage of the screen time by having daily pressers, and he then found out that he should stop doing that because he's really bad on camera. Really bad, yeah. yeah. Unless it's scripted, but even then, um, yeah, totally. Um, I agree with the points you've made. Uh, not only do we have cameras everywhere, they're like super duper ultra high def that can stream. Uh, in real time. So you see everything that is happening in in like 1080p detail across the world and it's trending so that everybody is watching it as it happens and contributing. 
at the same time. So you get this hive mind like effect, right? And that's that's new. That's technologically enabled by new technology that did not exist even in 2014 or 2017 in the same way. You know, this stuff just gets better and better and better every year. Um, and we're now at a point where everybody can basically teleport themselves to the middle of a protest or the middle of an atrocity, right? And be there and feel the same feelings at like, I don't know, 60% intensity. Um, you know, I was watching live streaming from a lot of the protests. Uh, you know, I haven't participated in them because, you know, I'm, I'm in close contact with older people and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, you know, we, did, we didn't want to go out, but I've, I've watched a lot of it um, from within the protest. And that was not possible um, the last time we had big protests like this. Um, in addition, yeah, COVID is for sure a what's called a conditioning variable um, in that um, it's just exacerbated the underlying economic and health inequalities uh, that uh, separate black from white in this country. You know, um, you and I uh, can work from home in extreme boredom, but relative comfort and safety, <laughs> right? Um, but a lot of the frontline workers, uh, essential workers, and and people that have to go out and man the grocery stores, do deliveries, uh, and so on, um, are people of color, right, in, in this country and elsewhere. And that is because they've been economically discriminated against. Um, a lot of them have pre-existing health conditions as well because they live in polluted areas. And the list goes on and on and on, right? And so when you die of this pandemic at hugely differential rates and you're not bailed out and a lot of your jobs go away um, because of the recession while other people get to keep their jobs, it's just like, that's unfair. That's unfair. That's unfair. We're getting killed, not just by police, but by the entire system, you know? Right. I just want to say this, though. It's not, to the broader point, it's not just black folks in the streets. These No, and that's a really important point. These protests have been incredibly, not just across the world to say, oh, there's thousands of, of Germans in the streets. It's been incredibly diverse uh, by almost every demographic measure that you can think of. The kind of background conditions and con- that you're talking about of saying, well, you know, in the United States, uh, black blacks, Latinos tend to tend to be economically disadvantaged and and have uh, have all these sort of background conditions that mean that they're going to be affected worse by by the uh, by the pandemic are are there. But this is also where social science has its really frustrating limitations, <laughs> where where you can try and like say, well, we'll we'll talk about this and we'll control for that. And what it happens is, you know, folks don't live in tidally constructed social science conditions, <laughs> right? They don't, they don't exist like that. There's too many intervening variables, mm. uh, that, and whose effects you can try and create clever ways to measure, but in the, in actual life, people live off of feelings and stories more than anything. And the story that, that people of all demographics in this country are saying is this has got to stop. So to give this to, you know, to move it away from social science talk into the real, this is where this conversation about grappling with history and its complexities is coming to the fore in the form of Confederate monuments. Mm -hmm. 
military installations named after Confederate soldiers. And when we start examining the history of these things, it gets even harder I think for a lot, a lot of folks are getting a big education in this stuff. Like the Confederacy was only around for four or five years. Uh, most of these monuments get put up in the 20th century, more than 50 years after the end of the Civil War by the Daughters of the American Revolution or as part right. of negotiation tactics between state governments and, and, uh, and the federal government. And this is this part is not just an American thing. The same kind of like outline of grappling with history can be applied to the statues that Steve talked about in England. You know, mm-hmm. with Churchill, you know, there's a real debate about Churchill as a historical figure. And you say, well, he was the driving force behind stopping Hitler. And so for this, he should be honored in perpetuity. Debatable, but yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> but this is this is the argument that's being made. It is, and yeah. Then, and the, the weird part of that argument is that folks that are saying we should leave the statue as it is are also saying, why can't these protesters see that historical figures are complex? They're complex figures. To which you can say, sure, why can't you also acknowledge the other very awful parts of his complex historical uh, of his complex history? So you talked about the India uh, about India. Yeah. Well, you know the the thing that is of of consistent debate is in 1943 there was a famine in Bengal. Uh, without going too far into the details of this, there have been various historical even uh, geo. Um, even meteorological studies to talk about the causes of this famine. And the reality is that, like, you know, folks arguing in favor of keeping the statue as it is say, look, he's a complex figure. It wasn't his fault. He had to manage the war in Europe, which was a much more pressing concern. Anybody talking about pragmatic politics and international relations recognizes that it's the British Empire and Britain had to survive, et cetera, et cetera. And for me, not just as someone as a, as a, a, of Indian extraction, I say the following... Yeah, but why were they in Bengal in the first place? <laughs> right? Like, like it's like this very like nuanced argument. That, it wasn't like, by accident, <laughs> right? It's like this very like nuanced argument about like the glories and wonder of Churchill and the importance of his heroism in world in leadership in World War II and how through prose and grit and seeing seeing Hitler for who he was, he was able to push forward the cause of freedom. But then we also say, well, why did he even have to manage food in Bengal? Why, why was this a management issue that you're now defending him for? Like, hmm. are we going to walk past the, like, the, the millions of, of deaths in India over, over several centuries? Are we going to, yeah. why, why are we walking past the part where before the British came in, the Indians were responsible for double-digit percentage of global GDP, and by the time they left, it was less than 1% of global GDP. That doesn't sound good at all. That sounds no, terrible. But, right. It's a terrible deal for the Indians. But this is like this is kind of it. Is this historical grappling is happening in the streets and the folks that are saying, like, well, hold on, the folks in the street aren't grappling with the complexities, is to say, well, you're also choosing which parts of the complexities you actually want to grapple with. Like it's actually a very large and messy problem, even when you're talking about the Confederate monuments. Like, and there are successful cases 
in the U.S. of taking down Confederate monuments, like in New Orleans, like going through legal systems. There's ways of doing this. In Birmingham, which doesn't really exist until after the Civil War, there shouldn't be Confederate monuments. <laughs> and, and yet there are. And so this is... This didn't you is guys like a, lose? You lost. What's going on here? Yeah. Wait, wait, hold on. You didn't even lose because you weren't there. You didn't even go there. <laughs> you didn't even exist. Right. <laughs> you lost. And then, yeah, it's like uh, decades and centuries later, everybody's acting like they won, uh, including the people who actually won. So it's frustrating. And yes, it is very possible to draw a direct line, a thick line, a not particularly controversial line between the atrocities perpetrated by Europeans against non-European peoples hundreds of years ago uh, to the inequities in all of these successor states in the 21st century. And they are rampant, not just in the United States. Let's talk about some other Anglophone countries. Let's talk about Australia, where indigenous Australians make up 2% of the population in Australia, but 27% of the prison population in that country. That's not a great record on race, I would say. <laughs> Let's talk about England, where black Britons uh, make up 3% of the population, but 12% of the prisoners. Also not great. In this country, African-Americans make up 12% of the population and 33% of the prison population. So that's uh, roughly a 3x multiple. And these are not good records, right? It's not just the United States. Um, France... You know, if we went into France, if we went into Germany, uh, if we went into Sweden, you know, some societies uh, are a lot less uh, likely to jail people in general. They have smaller prison populations. But I think you're going to see um, disproportionalities in pretty much all of them. And when you look at that, um, you are seeing the effects of systemic racism, by and large, uh, that were created um, in some cases centuries ago and continue through the present day. But so this is like the small D democratic question, right? Yeah. Can democracies, can democracies learn and grow and seek justice, right? And to do so in a way that doesn't lead to, you know, in the small C conservative way, losing everything that was also good in the process. Yeah. So, yeah, good. Uh, well, what I'm going to say is, I, th- I think the clear answer is yes, and I think international relations actually has a theoretical framework for this in the area of the creation of international norms. And a norm is it's a pretty simple idea. It's just it's defined as a standard of appropriate behavior for actors within a given identity. So, what's fair game and what isn't? You know, it used to be that landmines, using landmines in warfare was fair game um, up until, what, five or six decades ago, right? And now— I think it was, it was more recent than that. Was it even more recently? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm blanking on her name. She won the Nobel Prize uh, in the earlier part of this century for the landmine ban. But yeah, I mean, this is—yeah, long story short, you're right. There's, there's now a norm on, on not using landmines— there's a question of like, what other weapons shouldn't you use? What are nuclear weapons? Chemical weapons, nu- nuclear weapons are, right. are both taboo, biological weapons. Um, in large parts of the world, the death penalty is taboo. 
you know, not in this country and Saudi Arabia and places like that, Iran, but, you know, throughout most of the developed world uh, at this point, they don't use the death penalty, even in even exceptional circumstances. Uh, it's, it's just been made illegal. Um, a much earlier example is, of course, slavery. Um, you know, there, the slave trade was was outlawed in most of Europe in, I believe, the early 19th century. And the U.S. and Brazil were both outliers, took longer, and was significantly bloodier. Um, those are examples of international norms that were created by basically citizens within countries leading interest groups and agitating and protesting and getting people on their side. And, um, you know, over time, shifting the Overton window, the sort of range of things that people uh, want to talk about and consider appropriate to talk about um, away from slavery being okay. You know, the abolitionists, it took a long time in this country. They were present at the present at the inception of this country, and it took them centuries to get there and a civil war, but it did happen. And um, nuclear weapons happened a lot faster uh, because the consequences of nuclear weapons were a lot more immediate. But you could say how many people were killed by slavery um, over the course of centuries versus nuclear weapons over the course of, you know, minutes, hours, and days, right? Um, slavery killed far more people at the time and then throughout the centuries, right? Um, racism has killed far more people than nuclear weapons, right? Um, so why could not an international norm against racism be possible? Yeah, I don't, I don't know about norm. This is one of the, it's, this is a really difficult part of the conversation to have because there is, I think, a largely accepted norm uh, towards saying I'm not a racist. Yeah, but true. and so this is this is it. Like this is you know this is kind of where I almost want to say like we reach the end of this conversation because you say well we hope there's changing norms, but this is like right now I don't even know that there is a good like we can talk about sketching out the outlines of a social science problem and talk about causes and effects and these things and and introduce historical facts but like this is this is where it gets to the point where I'm not sure this is actually the moment for for talking about uh, solutions because there isn't a lot of space for dialogue I think there is a yeah. lot of right now it's it's things are moving really hot I don't know where they're going or if things are going to change. I'm, you know, uh, I am an optimist by nature. And so I am hopeful that the slow trudge of history, or as Barack Obama said, you know, paraphrasing Martin Luther King, the long arc of history bends towards justice and it bends because we, because we pull it. Right. So me paraphrasing Obama, paraphrasing King. Uh, and you know, I'll, I'll say this for, for, to tag on to the point that you were making, you know, uh, James Baldwin in The Fire Next Time, whenever there, and you can look this up, every time there's a, a moments of racial strife, particularly in the U.S., someone in some newspaper will write an op-ed where they quote the part of his letter to his nephew also called James, The Fire Next Time, talking about, talking about love uh, and not love in the sense of like the infantile love, but love is in like this durable thing that endures. But there's an earlier part in that letter where Baldwin says to his nephew, he says, 
you can't leave this country. Great men have done great things here. And I think that that sort of sentiment is, um, is, is really it. And that's part of the, the hope is, the, is in the correctability of America. And it's a belief in correctability in democracies. That's sort of what you're seeing in the streets. And so I hope when you ask the question of, are norms changing? Uh, I'm hopeful. But, yeah. you know, I also know that it's slow and messy and given to lots of uh, backsteps. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And I think it's well said. And yeah, no, I don't mean to suggest that like racism will be illegal tomorrow, right? That's clearly not the case. There are, it's such a huge problem. It's, it's a problem that is both learned and to some extent like intrinsic to every society throughout human history from what we've seen. Um, doesn't mean that it's okay or the right thing. It's not. It causes, you know, heartbreak and death um, in very large amounts. Um, it, it is in need of correction. I think that as far as what we're seeing right now goes, you know, it's largely directed at the police, right? And I think that real reforms vis-a-vis law enforcement in this country can come out of this moment. It's kind of already happening at the local and state level. Uh, I'm less aware of reforms on the international level, but it could happen there too. Um, although policing in this country is really unique, uniquely terrible, <laughs> to, to be more specific, um, in the way that it operates um, to, I would say, box in and confine um, non, non-white people you know, people of less economic means, uh, marginalized communities, you know, that it, it works the same way in every country to a certain extent, but it doesn't work as violently in every country. Um, and so I think that's a, uh, an area of immediate reform. From there, you can start to work on more structural reform, right? You can start to work on things like increasing representation in corporate boardrooms, um, whereby only, I think, 3% of Fortune 500 CEOs in in this uh, country. Uh, You know, this country, it's all about the corporate hierarchy, right? When you get right down to it, what's happening in corporate America? Um, Not too many black CEOs in in Fortune 500 companies. I think it's 3%. And that is uh, a level roughly one-fourth of uh, their prevalence in general society, right? You know, there, there are other examples, um, you know, in academia, um, any elite institution you'd care to name, right? It's uh, representation is an area that I think culture is interested in improving and is in the process of improving. And my hope is that this movement will increase momentum and reinforce momentum. And through those mechanisms over time, uh, by increasing representation, and generating necessary reform, common sense reforms um, to institutions like the police, like banks, lending, you know, wealth generation, all of these things. We can go from both the top down and the bottom up to redress some of these inequalities and, and improve, frankly, to perfect our democracy. You know, that's, that's my thinking on the subject, but it, maybe it's naive. I hope it's not. <laughs> basically. <laughs> and with that, I think that we're done this week. Right, Sooms? Yep. Take a break. Two weeks. Taking a break. We will talk to you, everybody, in two weeks.